0: Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning, I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Today we've got two conversations about the problem of mis and disinformation. In the first segment, Courtney Raj, a Tech Policy Press contributor and board member, speaks with Vivian Schiller, Executive Director of Aspen Digital, a part of the Aspen Institute that just released the final report of the Commission on Information Disorder. And in the second segment, I speak with Karen Howe, Senior AI Editor at MIT Technology Review, about her year reporting on how the business model of social media platforms incentivizes the deterioration of information ecosystems. First, the Commission on Information Disorder, which released its final report this month, says its aims were to, quote, "identify and prioritize the most critical sources and causes of information disorder and deliver a set of short-term actions and longer-term goals to help government, the private sector, and civil society respond to this modern-day crisis of faith in key institutions," unquote. The commission's final report is available at the Aspen Institute website. Just search for Aspen Commission on Information Disorder in your search engine and you're sure to find it. Here's Courtney to introduce the report and to kick off the discussion with Vivian Schiller.
1: Hello, my name is Courtney Raj, and I am a contributor to Tech Policy Press, and I'm delighted to be hosting this podcast today and speaking with Vivian Schiller, the Executive Director of Aspen Digital. Vivian has been involved in the release of the final report from the Commission on Information Disorder a commission that was spun up earlier this year in order to address this wicked problem, recognizing that while the information disorder is a problem that can't be completely solved, there are ways to mitigate misinformation's worst harms and prioritizing the vulnerable segments of society with some concrete, actionable recommendations. Could you talk to me just Really, you know, quickly about just an overview of why this report, why now, and what you hope it's going to achieve. Yeah, sure. And thanks, Courtney, and thanks for for having me. Um,
2: it's been a, a whirlwind week with our um, report launch on Monday, and it's been uh, well, it's been a, quite a year, a couple of years for all of us. But um, so yeah, let me just—I'll take a quick step back. So it's the Commission on Information Disorder, and we very. Specifically, use the phrase "information disorder," which was first coined by uh, uh, Claire Wardle at, at First Draft. Which I, I like that term because it's a little takes a little bit more um, expansive uh, view uh, than just misinformation disinformation which is quite specific. I mean, certainly it's at the center, but quite specific. So this came about. We've we've been doing long-standing work on cybersecurity, and cybersecurity. You know, as all of the different disciplines that we're all involved with begin to converge into one big lump in the middle, um, some of our cybersecurity uh, group members really suggested uh, beginning to look more at information warfare as an extension of, of cyber warfare, and then ended up morphing into something a little more expansive than just information warfare into this broader uh, information disorder uh, discipline. This is also a, a subject near and dear to my heart. I've been in mostly at, at, at the intersection of media, news media and the internet for almost 30 years. So i uh, you know, I've been seeing the evolution of this, and I've, you know, been troubled to see uh, how things have really escalated. The troubles have escalated over the last few years. So, so the idea was to put together sort of a time limited commission. This is, you know, not something that we wanted to spend years and years on, even though the work will take decades to unfold. Uh, and also, the kinds of people that we wanted to engage are very busy, and I don't think we could have gotten them for more than six months. So, we put together a commission. Um, starting with our three co-chairs, which is Chris Krebs, of course, the former uh, head of CISA. I think actually today is the uh, one-year anniversary of him being fired by tweet. So it, you know, let's we'll toast to that. Katie Couric, who uh, is of course the the, the well-known uh, journalist, and just this week now number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And Rashad Robinson, the CEO of Color of Change, uh, the the noted uh, civil rights organization. And then we. Um, fleshed out the group to include people from across disciplines, very specifically and mindfully choosing people that bring different experiences, backgrounds, visions, worldviews, perspectives, lived experiences to it. So the group included um, really incredible academics who I'm sure your listeners are familiar with, including um, Alex Stamos, Herb Lynn, Kate Starbird, um, the newest MacArthur genius, Sophia Noble, Jamil Jaffer, who runs the Knight First Amendment uh, Center at Columbia, Deb Roy from MIT, former Republican congressman Will Hurd, um, the attorney general of Nevada, Democrat Aaron Ford, uh, journalist Amanda Zamora, uh, Yasmin Green from uh, Jigsaw. And we have two folks who are really now in the philanthropic space on this, but also bring unique experiences, which is uh, Catherine Murdoch and Prince Hare. I really hope I named everybody there um, and didn't forget anyone. But yeah, it was quite a group. And the objective was to both, and and thank you for recognizing that we both take a contextual uh, view of the work, but also coming out of that uh, offer quite specific, what we feel are actionable recommendations, which obviously I'm happy to talk much more about.
1: Yeah, so let's delve into some of those. So, I, I definitely want to talk to you about uh, some of the specific recommendations to the news media. But maybe before we delve into specifics, um, give us a sense of, in the report. You know, there are several types of, of recommendations, different categories of repu- uh, of recommendations, but all of them, you know, target government news media, political leaders, um, influencers. So could you give us a sense of just kind of what are the general overview of the core recommendations from your perspective?
2: Right. So, well, what we did, the first thing that the group did is, and we published at the halfway mark of the group's very intensive convenings over six months, uh, a document that was to name the priorities that the commission decided they wanted to focus on. Um, this happened at the beginning of July, and the three priorities were increasing transparency, building trust, and reducing harms. And so those three priorities became the north star for the commission, and the the fifteen recommendations all ladder up to one or frankly one or more of those priorities. And they are you, you, it's interesting you named uh, some of the some of the groups that they're targeted on, but you left off. Uh, an important one, which is uh, the private sector and the tech companies, because of course, a lot of this is aimed at the tech companies, but not just the tech companies, but also the entirety of the private sector. But yes, those were the three priority areas that we focused on.
1: Thanks for for clarifying that. I guess uh, one of the things that stuck out to me about this report is that, of course, it doesn't address the tech companies as so many of the discussions around information disorders do. But I think unlike a lot of the the discussions and debates, it goes far beyond that. And it looks at um, how political leaders, elections, the news media all play into this. And one of the recommendations specifically is to the White House uh, to establish a dedicated team to kind of define the disinformation problem, to um, come up with some objectives and leadership around thinking about this issue as we do around national security and public health accountability. And I guess I wanted to delve into that recommendation because on the one hand you can understand why you want this high level attention and coordination to this issue. On the other hand, especially after, you know, the way we what we saw happen with January 6th and just kind of the whole presidency uh, of Donald Trump doesn't Creating this sort of um, independent body risk co-optation and politicization depending on who's in power? We, we actually stop short of saying that a new entity
2: should be developed. Uh, one of our recommendations, uh, w- thats we, which we call the con- comprehensive federal approach, does ask the administration to come up with a comprehensive strategic approach to disinformation. So there's too many parts of government, trying to own this issue, but there's no one person, department or agency that he has clear responsibility. So there's a lack of leadership or ownership. There's a lack of strategy that's hampering efforts uh, or you end up with duplication of efforts, which is you know a waste of time and, and taxpayer money. So this is not about a new power. It's about having a clear strategy and identifying who is leading on what, what parts of that strategy. You know, to the to you to your question of, and listen, you know, I can't tell you how many times over the course of the, of the commission's deliberations, you know, we were constantly the commission was constantly red teaming their own recommendations along the line and thinking, well, you know, are we comfortable with this recommendation? This is the commission, regardless of who's in charge. Does this does this stand up to you know? Can this stand up to whoever is you know what whatever party is controlling which branch of government? And We like to believe that what we're creating is a responsibility and a streamlining rather than uh, suggesting that all of the power, in this case, go to the White House itself in terms of decision-making. That is not a good result for anyone, to have anyone have that kind of authority.
1: Thanks for clarifying that. I think that people will you know, certainly feel a little bit more comfortable with that, but it certainly does seem that without that high-level attention to this as, a, as an issue that is so multifaceted and crosses so many kind of sectors and, and areas of practice that it, it would be difficult to address at the governmental and regulatory level without that sort of coordination. Um, but I want to delve into a little bit more around kind of the intersection of the news media and technology, because of course, you're not only the executive director of Aspen Digital but you have a long and stellar career at the intersection of media and technology from, you know, heading up our national public radio, one of, I think the, the star media organizations in the world. Um, You were the global chair of news at Twitter. You've worked at NBC, the New York times, you know, some of the the most say powerfully normative uh, news institutions in the world. And you well, the the report specifically looks at the importance of local journalism, the importance of journalism that serves traditionally underserved community, and really singles out the importance of norms and how those can't be regulated. They need to be enforced within, within professions. Talk to us a little bit more about that and and how does journalism and the news media play a role in the response to the global information infodemic? well the the, the, the news media uh, even to this day <laughs> is
2: still you know a, a primary source of how people get their information. you know there there's I, I, I hesitate to to even use and if if you're uh, Listeners could see me i 'm using air quotes now about the media because the whole concept of this of calling something the media is is kind of ridiculous the media there's no such thing as the media that implies that it 's some kind of club uh, you know the, even the news media is so incredibly diverse in terms of quality and flavor and and subject matter, and standards, and uh, and you name it. So, but you know what people generally call the main, the mainstream media. Uh, we also need to look at well, there's many ways to slice and dice it, but I would look at national media and local media. What we call out in the report is specifically local media, national media, from a sort of from a business model, a sustainability model. Is doing okay. I mean, that's a broad brush and, and, and somebody, and no doubt some will take issues with that because, you know, it is business models are still very difficult, but local media, when I say local, I mean, news organizations that are owned and operated at the local level and there to serve the interests and cover stories relevant to local audiences has been decimated. It's just been a crisis. It was a crisis before COVID and now it's even more so. Why does this matter and what is this about to do with information disorder? Survey after survey over many decades has shown that when people, people will often say they don't trust the media, this sort of, you know, conceptual notion of this, you know, monolith, but they do trust their local media. You know, in the same way that people don't like Congress, but they like their local congressperson. I mean, it, it's it's human nature. And and in fact, people trust the local media and they also rely on a local media to uh, obviously inform them and at, for, about what's happening in their community, to hold institutions, uh, whether those are private sector or government officials account to bear witness uh, to be in the school board meetings, something that school board meetings are relevant again, all of a sudden to be, to be uh, paying attention to government. And it's also an important glue that creates community cohesion, something that is really a deficit right now. And so with the decline of local media, uh, there has been a, a void created. And in that void has flooded a lot of frankly garbage, whether it's from Facebook groups or what are called pink slime sites which are basically propaganda uh, sites masquerading as as local journalism or even just you know what used to be uh, legit local news organizations who have been bought by local newspapers who have been bought by hedge funds and frankly strip mined and are mostly just covering national news which is shown to be more divisive than local news and doesn't serve those needs. So so we do call on you know a substantial long-term investment to restore local journalism And we seek philanthropic investment and we are exploring ideas that are out there. I mean, this is not something the commission came up with, but ideas that are out there around an advertising tax, tax credits to provide needed resources to local journalism. The second recommendation that you brought up with, which is not specifically about journalism, but certainly applies to journalism, is about accountability norms. So the recommendation asks communities and leaders to set and promote norms that create personal and professional consequences for individuals who violate the public trust. This could be about things that really are not about journalism at all, like professional standard bodies, like medical associations, holding their members accountable when they share false information with the public, you know, for profit or frankly, for just mischief. But it also applies to journalists who need to adopt new professional practices that foreground fact-based information that don't, you know, traffic in sort of both siderisms, or uh, or in the case of certain cable news organizations, you know, leadership that does not, that will not, you know, put up with uh, lies being propagated in their shows. And, and we need those norms to be established uh, in order for, to begin to build a more trustworthy uh, information ecosystem.
1: So two things to follow up on that. One is that one of the tactics that social science researchers have found is, But sometimes it's not so much about the spread of lies as it is about questions and framing things as questions which uh implies that either both ciderism or you know just also really shapes the debate and there have been some uh studies for example of some of fox news's top show hosts and and to this point about professional norms i guess you know as as someone who's also kind of looked at the journalism profession and thought about citizen journalism versus professional journalism is it that we need new norms or do we need to double down on what counts as journalism and really seek to differentiate that from punditry, for example. And how do we do that without abridging free speech?
2: Uh, I mean, you
1: are <laughs> you're pushing all my buttons here,
2: Courtney. Yes, yes. I mean, I was, you know, again, our norms recommendations a little bit broader than just journalism, but you know, news org- like legit, serious news organizations, you know, before we even talk about bad faith uh, media. Are, are have been going through a bit of a you know a existential crisis in recent years in terms of trying to figure out how to shape shift coverage uh, in the face of of norms, frankly, in Washington and throughout the country being broken. You know, even things like you know it would have been standard up until a couple of years ago, maybe shouldn't have been, but that you know a statement from a local police precinct was that was it that was the last word on. What happened? Uh, No longer. That a statement from the White House, uh, the statements that come from a press conference from the president of the United States would be reported as, you know, uh, you know, today the president said, you know, X. And so a lot of these kind of norms have been changing and, and news organizations are struggling with how to get their head around the fact that there are certain truths around which there is, should be no neutrality. For example, Uh, voting should be fair and widely accessible. Democracy is a good thing. Public health should be upheld. And you're seeing in real time, journalists struggling with how to break that instinct to not both sides things. There are ways to do this. And some of the tactics are the question mark, you know, which is, you know, really a weaselly way to tell a story. But there you know I will I will I'm going to call out political. I you know these are the kinds of things that make me crazy. And political has some great coverage so is listening, you know, respect. But I got to tell you that the lead this morning was um, I'm re, I just pulled it up while you were talking. Siren for Biden. Voters have increasing doubts about the health and mental fitness of President Joe Biden, the oldest man uh, ever sworn into the White House according to a new political morning consult poll. Okay. They will say We're just reporting the results of our call. But by leading the story, questioning the mental health of the president without any objective evidence that the mental health of the president has been compromised is irresponsible. It is irresponsible. Um, I would have said the same thing if it were Trump. This is not a partisan statement. There are ways to report things like that that help the audience. There's something, for example, called the truth sandwich. So the truth sandwich is when you're dealing, Courtney, you can't see her, but Courtney's smiling and nodding because she's, let me just say what the, can I give, can I take a minute to explain what the truth sandwich is? So the truth sandwich is when, when you have to report something that is newsworthy, but is either contains a falsehood or might be misconstrued, you take that thing that you want to report. That's the meat inside the sandwich, but the bread is the context that the the reader, the listener, or the viewer needs. So, for example, a better way for Politico to have told this story about their poll saying people are, are doubtful about uh, Biden's mental health would be to say, you know, I, I'm, I'm making this up, so don't take this verbatim, but, you know, despite the fact that Joe Biden is, you know, the oldest serving president of the United States, there has been no evidence of mental decline. Uh, by doctors or, you know, or whatever. However, the latest poll conducted by Politico says that despite that, you know, voters have increasing doubts. In fact, I'm reading only 40% of voters agree with the statement that he's in good health. So there's your meat. So that, so the context is there's no evidence to this. However, people believe that then the other piece of bread is, you know, some kind of interpretation, maybe that this has to do with, you know, some of the media that's out there or social media posts or partisanship or what have you. So it's this is just one example. There are solutions to tell stories, and news media needs to get their heads around that. Thanks for explaining. Lecture over.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for explaining the truth sandwich. I think that you know how reporters report is really important, but of course. For reporters to do good reporting, we need to have uh, journalists employed and news outlets that are sustainable. And so, you know, the, the report points to some of the recommendations and proposals that are out there to better fund and support local journalism, such as tax credits to subsidize local news subscriptions investing government advertising dollars in Black, Brown, Indigenous, and marginalized community media, um, tax incentives. Do you think that these approaches that are currently in discussion and out there are sufficiently widespread to reach the entire population and not just those who are wealthy enough to benefit from tax breaks and tax credits? How can we make sure that all Communities yeah. and and people have access to quality information, especially if they are relying on uh, social media platforms for the main part of their information diet.
2: Well, the Local Journalism Sustainability Act, which is making its way through Congress, specifically um, has has several mechanisms, including tax credits. So, just to be to be clear, and God knows I'm not a tax expert, but a tax credit is different than a tax than a, than a write off. I mean, tax credit comes right off your taxes, as opposed to something that is more uh, useful to uh, uh, those that might be in um, higher income brackets. And boy, I hope I got that got that right. Like I said, I am not a tax expert, so that that should have an impact, and it allows people to you know use that tax credit for you know around certain criteria to, uh, for a subscription or a donation to support their you know local news uh, organizations. But I'm also you know, encouraged to see that philanthropy has really uh, really stepped up in terms of uh, recognizing uh, the crisis of the of, of news deserts around the country. There's been tremendous amount of investment. Uh, there are some promising new uh, practices in terms of reader revenue. So it's not just about uh, philanthropy, uh, earned media, and other, other forms of revenue for news organizations. I mean, to all of these things together, Make up for the the massive decline in advertising dollars. Not yet, but you know the good news is there's a great deal of attention on this, and many of us are are, are focused on uh, focused on this issue, and you know hence this being an important recommendation.
1: Right. Well, well, thank you for that. And you know, as somebody who is also very interested in that, that's why I wanted to kind of deep dive into this specific kind of intersection of the information disorder and the link with media. But as we we wrap up, just to ask you about kind of one of the other key recommendations that I think we're seeing picking up speed both in the United States and around the world, for example, in the EU, is this need for platforms to provide access to data and information, particularly for independent and accredited researchers. We know, obviously, from recent revelations, not to mention the several years preceding the most recent revelations from Francis Haugen, that there is research being done by the platforms themselves that's not always reaching the light of day, as well as the fact that they're shutting down research often under the guise of "oh, we need to compl-, you know protect privacy" or comply with you know privacy guidelines, whether it's here in the U.S. or the GDPR in the EU. Um, so can talk a little bit about the recommendation around access yeah. and why is that so important and, and how, you know, how are you guys thinking about that?
2: Yeah, this is actually the first recommendation of all of them. I mean, not that we have them in order of priority, but about public interest research. And it actually contains, this recommendation is actually, we're cheating a little bit, it's two proposals, but it's under one, <laughs> under one banner. So the first is about public data. And this recommendation calls for new protections for researchers and for journalists who access data through online platforms, either through scraping uh, or other means so that in order to do public interest research, which often violates terms of service. So, you know, scraping itself has been you know called into question, even though uh, it is not a crime. And again, it is uh, it resp- this response to the increasing number of cases where researchers are using. Uh, public data from social media for study, and they're being blocked by the platforms. The most recent example that is probably most well-known to your listeners is the NYU researchers who were blocked from Facebook while studying uh, political ads. The second part of the recommendation is about private data. So this proposal requires platforms to provide access to some private data to qualified researchers working in the public interest but while also uh, protecting user privacy and, and of course platform integrity. So Nate Priscilla's recent proposal, uh, we referenced that in the doc, that's part of the recommendation as a potential solution to this challenge of access. And this recommendation would give safe harbor to platforms who meet this disclosure requirement for the research that was produced by third-party researchers. So, you know, in other words, there's no no longer can, they, can uh, a platform say, well, you know, this violates FTC policies, uh, as they said, I think, in the NYU case, even though afterwards the FTC said, wait a minute, don't pin this on us. We don't have a problem with it.
1: It's interesting talking to, uh, you know, the FTC or uh, privacy officials in Europe and talking to them about the excuses that tech platforms have for not providing data. And they're like, wait a second, that is not what yeah. we intended <laughs> and don't blame us. So, exactly, you know, I know there are efforts, you know, Rebecca Trumbull and um, others who are working at the EU. So I think, you know, as we conclude here, how do we think about you know, harmonizing the recommendations here and the approach to regulating normatively or through government regulation in a way that preserves an open, free, open, secure, interoperable internet without every jurisdiction kind of having their own approach. Are you guys talking to the Europeans, particularly since they're a little bit more advanced on these kind of overarching regulatory frameworks? Yeah,
2: we certainly were informed by a lot of what's happening uh, in Europe, Australia, and elsewhere, uh, but decided for this commission that we needed, given it was a six-month commission, we needed to put some guardrails around it. So this is focused primarily on the U.S. context. However, um, the next uh, step is to sort of take this on the road, so to speak. I mean, that virtually, maybe uh, literally too, because there is clearly some really important work to do. To, to sort of normalize across, see what might be possible in terms of wh- what's what's working in other parts of the world. What can be implemented? What can what can be what transferable uh, learnings there might be. You know, the recommendations. These fifteen recommendations. No single one of them is a silver bullet. Even all of them together is not a silver bullet. The objective was not like you know here we are. This is the answer. Here's the holy grail. Bringing this down from the mountaintop. Not at all. It was you know, here, here's the context. This is a whole of society problem. And here are a set of distinct yet interoperable recommendations that are actionable. These are actionable and that might begin to reverse the tide. And so, you know, just doing our part and really hoping and doing whatever we can so that these recommendations, you know, take flight, that they are picked up by other organizations, private sector, public sector, civil society, uh, to to carry this work forward.
1: Well, thank you so much, Vivian, for taking the time to talk with the Tech Policy Press audience about this report, about the work of the commission. And I think that, you know, we'll all be watching and listening to see what the next steps are and how the various actors who uh, the commission has made recommendations to take those on board and move forward with them. So, Uh, stay tuned. We, this is hopefully not the last of it since there are a lot of really useful, as you said, actionable recommendations in here. And we look forward to following up. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Courtney.
0: If you think you have an idea to address the problem of information disorder as you've just heard it described, the Aspen Tech Policy Hub, which collaborates with Tech Policy Press on its New Voices program, has just launched the Information Disorder Prize Competition. The competition seeks to fund projects that work toward one or more of the Commission's 15 recommendations. Up to five semifinalists will be awarded $5,000 each to develop prototypes of their deliverables over an eight-week period after which one team will be awarded a $75,000 grand prize to execute their idea. You can find more information about the prize at AspenTechPolicyHub.org. If you are enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, join our newsletter. Next up. Before Thanksgiving, I had the chance to speak with Karen Howe, a senior editor at MIT Technology Review, where she covers the latest research and social impacts of artificial intelligence. Karen is also an MIT night science journalism fellow and a Harvard Technology and Public Purpose fellow. This year, Karen has produced multiple in-depth reports that look at the problem of social media and misinformation, disinformation and how the business models of the platforms incentivize the problem. She just published an in-depth report titled How Facebook and Google Fund Global Misinformation, which says that, quote, the tech giants are paying millions of dollars to the operators of clickbait pages, bankrolling the deterioration of information ecosystems around the world, unquote. Here's Karen.
3: I am Karen Howe, and I am the Senior Artificial Intelligence Editor at MIT Technology Review.
0: Karen, thank you for joining me today. In a year of Big stories about Facebook. You have had uh, a year of big stories about Facebook that weren't <laughs> that were not based on the Facebook papers, which is something to say at, at this point in time in November uh, 2021. Um, and I'm I'm quite pleased to have you to talk about them and to talk about how they have, I suppose, laddered up to your most recent report. But I don't know. Perhaps uh, just step back for a second, and can you tell folks a little bit about your beat at MIT Technology Review?
3: Yeah, my beat. It's it's funny because my beat has kind of changed a lot um, this past year. But originally, I, I w- was hired to cover artificial intelligence research and and how that cutting edge research was impacting society. So I spent a lot of time reading a lot of papers, um, talking with a lot of experts about just what we should be expecting this particular digital technology to how we should be expecting it to evolve and how we should be expecting it to change our lives and the way that we work, the way that we interact with each other. So those were kind of all questions that I was really interested in diving into, which ultimately then led me to writing this series of Facebook pieces. And I think the first one is much more in line with that original remit for my beat. But once you write one Facebook story, it's hard to stop. So then I kind of started branching out from there and writing more Facebook stories that really don't have much to do with artificial intelligence in particular. But that was that's my core. That's what I usually do.
0: So let's go back, uh, I guess, a few months in time. Um, March 2021, you put out this piece, how Facebook got addicted to spreading misinformation, which on some level is a report, of course, about that topic, but also a profile of an individual there. Tell us a little bit about that report.
3: I think I'm actually going to start the story even further back. So in, I want to say June of last year, I'm I'm a little bit hazy on the exact timeline now, but it was about nine months before I published that first piece was when I actually was first reached out to by Facebook to do An in-depth piece on their AI organization. And Facebook has a huge AI organization. There's there's many different um, sub-teams in that organization. There's the fundamental research, there's the applied research, um, and then there's this team called the Responsible AI Team, which is ultimately the one that I profiled. But at the time, they were kind of just reaching out to say, hey, we know that you cover AI. We would be interested in talking to you about doing something in depth if you would be interested and i at the time just i didn't really have any preconceived notions about what i what kind of story i would be writing but facebook is it's it's a huge presence in the ai field and so i felt like regardless of what came out of me taking their call it would it would be worthwhile and so what happened was i was set up with a series of calls with their leadership on the AI team, on the AI org. And um, because the AI org sp- spans so many different things, each person that I talked to had a totally different, they, they were doing totally different things. Like I was talking with like Jan LeCun about, you know, how he was running the fundamental AI research stuff, which has nothing really to do with what the actual company product Focuses on, but then I was also talking with, you know, the director of the applied machine learning team about precisely how they were using machine learning in their photo recognition algorithms or their content moderation algorithms or um, all the hardware products that they've been putting out. Um, And the last guy that I spoke to was um, Joaquin Quinonero Candela, who ultimately. Became the main character for my story, and the reason why I chose to focus on him and his work is because he was the leader of the Responsible AI team. And I'd never heard of Facebook having a Responsible AI team, and I was pretty surprised that they had actually had some form of it for three years. And the team was created right around the time when Cambridge Analytica was happening, or or at least the, the revelations around Cambridge Analytica was happening. And to just remind people that was when. I guess the the world discovered that this political firm in the UK had used, essentially legally siphoned a lot of data from Facebook to then um, politically target voters during some critical elections, including the 2016 presidential election. That was obviously a huge scandal for Facebook. And it prompted it the company to create a lot of different teams to try and um, supposedly tackle tackle these issues and and button up some of the privacy concerns and the other algorithmic harms that the company had inadvertently stumbled into. And um, the response I team came out of that as well. And so I, I was like, okay, it's been around since Cambridge Analytica. What has Facebook done to improve the company and its practices and its products and what I basically found over the course of nine months of interviewing this guy as as well as many of his team members and also many, many current and former employees at Facebook was that the team had slowly, it, even though it started with a relatively broad remit of, hey, think about AI and think about how we're developing it and um, make sure that we're using AI for good, whatever that means, um, it had slowly narrowed its focus over the course of its three years to an increasingly small slice of what responsible AI means. So it was specifically focusing on trying to prevent um, algorithmic discrimination, which is an important problem and which Facebook does face. But it was just so clear to me from the conversations that they had created this microscopic definition of how to think about responsible AI um, that was like pretty detached from the context of Facebook itself and the types of AI harms that it could perpetuate, um, and that that ultimately is what the story is about. That was that was a pretty long-winded uh, introduction to the story, but <laughs> that's that's how it came about.
0: You kind of get into the a couple of those key problems that, that Facebook does face and, and, and how I suppose that sits outside of this responsible AI team's focus. And of course, one of those problems is the problem of, of mis- and disinformation and the way that it spreads on the platform, the way that the platforms incentives and, and business model mm-hmm. encourage that. What did you learn in the course of reporting this piece and how did that then translate into the next piece on troll farms?
3: So I think that one of the things that I was really fascinated about when I was reporting the first piece was just really understanding the mechanics behind the general claims in the public discourse about how Facebook amplifies misinformation and hate speech. That was already something that people were talking about a lot and also um, how Facebook polarizes users and those those were all things that were kind of like in the general public discourse but I really wanted to understand the mechanics of like how exactly would Facebook's algorithm algorithms do that and so I spent quite a lot of time talking with people who had worked on the Facebook content recommendation system about how the system was built and like what it like it's its behavior, like what it, what is it supposed to actually do, and and fundamentally, um, what it does is it's supposed to maximize engagement, which was also something that we had sort of known generally speaking. But I think there wasn't quite a detailed understanding at that point of like how engagement maximization specifically can lead to the spreading of misinformation and hate speech. And what I learned through, through the course of my reporting is that there had been many, many studies internally at Facebook that showed that the most engaging content is going to be... Borderline prohibited content on the platform. And that means things that are borderline misinformation, things that are borderline hate speech, or things that are misinformation and hate speech that the AI systems didn't successfully catch. And what the algorithms were designed to do is literally amplify that content to as many users as possible. And there were, I spoke with a lot of people who talked about. Both how they designed the system to do that, and also how they were measuring the system and discovering that the system was polarizing users, it was amplifying misinformation, it was also um, actually worsening people's mental health because of the engagement maximization, like at at the core of the way that the system worked. And so that was like the main thing that that like really started um, obsessing me is just like this company. Has clearly invested quite a lot of energy in, in trying to build as well as understand the impact of its systems, but it's not really doing anything to stop these like really egregious impacts, these really egregious harms. And the way that that then led me to write about the second story on troll farms was after I published this piece, I actually got reached out to by a lot of people who had worked at Facebook who. Um, the piece just really resonated with, and they were like, "You hit the nail on the head," and and were really concerned about just the general progression of the company continuing to ignore the way that its fundamental design has created a worse off public discourse, worse off information ecosystem. And through the course of just taking calls with these people, uh, one of the former employees ended up giving me this report about yet another way that they were really concerned that Facebook was making our information ecosystems worse off. And this was an October 2019 report that was written by a former data scientist um, that basically showed that troll farms based in Macedonia and Kosovo had created, were operating these huge Facebook pages with like millions of audience members. And their content had reached nearly half of Americans in a year before the 2020 election. And this was yet again, sort of like a example of like in the report, it really emphasized how it was Facebook's own design, Facebook's own algorithms, the the decisions that the leadership was making that was leading to this phenomenon of giving potentially bad actors a huge loudspeaker for them to disseminate their content to like the audiences that they were trying to target. Um, and so that's, that ended up being my second piece was writing about this report in particular and the findings of the report in particular.
0: Just some really incredible revelations uh, in in that report, uh, 15,000 pages uh, with a majority U.S. audience being run out of Kosovo and Macedonia. And then you've got, you know, numbers 140 million U.S. users monthly, 360 million global users weekly. And then just some wild things about the troll farms themselves, the, uh, the largest Christian American page on Facebook, 20 times larger than the next largest you write, uh, reaching 75 million users monthly, um, Mm -hmm. was one of these troll farms. Uh, and then, you know, it turns out that, you know, when you kind of look down the list, the majority of pages pushing themselves, at the top Christian American pages on Facebook are run Mm -hmm. by troll farms. Uh, the top pages targeting uh, black people in the United States with the handful of exceptions, uh, you know, of the top 15, the majority run by troll farms. I mean, just mm-hmm. absolutely extraordinary.
3: I mean, it, it is really crazy. And I think the thing that the thing that Facebook pushed back on was, okay, these, these farms are not coordinated disinformation. They're just clickbait spam. Um, because if you go on the pages, there's like a lot of, it looks Really innocuous. It's like memes and, you know, like random like for the Christian pages, there's just like a lot of memes about Jesus and prayer and God loving you. like it it doesn't seem particularly harmful. It's like, fine. These people, if people are engaging in this content, then then let them engage in the content. But the issue is that you can't really draw a defined line between financially motivated spammers and, People that are trying to, or or operations that are trying to influence political opinion, and like there there are individuals that can very easily drift between the two, depending on who pays the money. Like if one day they're being paid um, to do this spammy work, that's fine. If another day a politician decides to pay them to mobilize their two million, uh, their their like Facebook page of two million users targeting Christian Americans specifically to do something else, then they'll do that work. And what this report, internal report, was sounding the alarm on was the fact that Facebook's algorithms and design had allowed these actors so easily to build these huge followings within vulnerable communities that specifically were the communities that known political influence operations have tried to target in the U S in the past. So he was like, there's nothing stopping either those operations from do using the same exact tactics to build up the same massive audiences in these targeting tar- the communities that they want to target and, or purchasing these, these pages from these financially motivated spammers and then converting those, those huge audiences into whatever their, their use converting those pages into whatever they want, them to be used for.
0: That brings us to report number three, uh, just published this week, how Facebook and Google fund global misinformation. So take the listener through it a little bit. Uh, You you start us off in in Myanmar in March of, of 2021. You start the story there.
3: Yeah. So this again goes back to how I ultimately came across this story was after I published this report on troll farms, there was a couple lines in the report in the troll farms report that mentioned that these troll farms had successfully gotten into Facebook's monetization programs. And I kind of in the back of my mind at the time, I was like, that probably means that Facebook is paying these troll farms, but I didn't really have enough evidence to substantiate claims Uh like that, it, it because I I didn't fully understand what it might mean for these farms to get into monetization programs, so I kind of just filed it in the back of my mind. But when when I published the story, this digital rights researcher based in Myanmar started tweeting screenshots of invoices from Facebook to troll farms in her context in Myanmar, and I was like, this person knows what's up, so I. I ended up messaging her, um, this is Victoire Rio, and I asked her, where did you get these invoices? Do you have more where they came from? And she was like, I have so many screenshots and videos and documents of how these clickbait actors purposely gear their entire livelihoods towards getting into these monetization programs and getting payouts from Facebook and Google. And so... I ended up spending a lot of time just with her understanding what she was seeing on the ground in Myanmar specifically. And the reason why I start the piece in Myanmar is because Facebook, like the story of like how Facebook really messed up Myanmar is like not a new one. And it was just shocking to me that the way that like Macedonians and uh, people in Kosovo were, were also messing up the US information ecosystem. That that was also not a news story. Like these are like problems that Facebook has known about for years. And these are problems that they have consistently said that they are putting more investment into resolving. And so the fact that in 20, like October of 2019, they were still dealing with these troll farms from Macedonia and Kosovo. And then in 2021, they're still dealing with their own systems wrecking. <laughs> the social and political environment in Myanmar was just like crazy to me. And I, I immediately knew that I needed to talk about that um, in my piece. So, so the piece opens with going back to the role that Facebook played in um, what the, the UN calls a genocide against the Rohingya, which is a predominantly Muslim minority um, in Myanmar. And this was back in in 2016, 2017, when there was already a lot of ethnic and racial tensions um, escalating in the country. And what I don't think we realized at the time about this story is that the information environment in Myanmar, in the country, was just already completely ruined by the way that, um, or sorry, we already knew that it was already completely ruined because there was so much misinformation and hate speech spreading on Facebook. But what we didn't know is that potentially it was literally Facebook's payments out to people that get into their monetization programs that was leading to this ruin. So there there were clickbait farms that had cropped up in Myanmar geared towards entering Facebook's monetization programs, getting payments from Facebook's programs that were the ones creating the misinformation that led to just a chaotic information environment that led to the escalation of... Um, a lot of hateful and dangerous rhetoric on the platform that led to the escalation of ethnic tensions, ultimately to um, to the point of a genocide. And what, what the piece then goes through is um, using Myanmar as this, as a case study of of how these these clickbait operatives work and how they can impact and totally um, deteriorate an information environment. It it sort of walks through how they operate, why it doesn't really matter that they're financially motivated spammers. They can still post political content just because they're doing it for money doesn't mean that they don't end up swaying public discourse potentially or amplifying um, hateful political rhetoric or misinformation. And it goes all the way to present day in Myanmar, which is now in the throes of a civil war, yet another conflict, right after it suffered a coup in March. And it's again, it's like the same. Now there's like so many clickbait actors being paid by Facebook and Google that are just continuing to mess with people's understanding or grasp of the truth during an incredibly precarious political and social time. Let me ask you a couple of things
0: just to just to give the listener a sense of the mechanics of this, because you kind of you bring in uh, Facebook's instant articles product. And then also maybe we can start there, and if you can explain the connection to Google and YouTube and how that fits with this.
3: Yeah, so I think most listeners would be familiar with the way that Macedonian Kosovo farms how they were able to make money. Like there, there were some great pieces back in like 2017 or 2018 from Craig Silverman and BuzzFeed News about how these farms were specifically using Google AdSense to cash out and um, create money from clickbait websites. So there were there were these farms that were creating these websites and then they would put ads on their websites and then they would get like checks with thousands of dollars a month. And basically the same thing is happening with Facebook. Um, so in 2015, Facebook launched Instant Articles, which was their version of Google AdSense effectively. Like if a publisher published an article on the Facebook platform, and they opted into Instant Articles and also to Facebook, uh, Facebook's equivalent of AdSense, then um, Facebook would place ads on their articles... It, or Sorry, Facebook would place ads into their articles and then also give these publishers payouts in the same way that Google would give um, publishers AdSense payouts. And so in 2015, Facebook started this program with just a few mainstream publishers uh, based in the US and EU. But over over the next year, they opened it up and rolled it out globally. So basically, anyone with a website could enter this monetization program and start getting um, ad revenue payouts from Facebook. And what happened was, it pretty instant articles pretty quickly became not so popular among mainstream publications because the payouts just weren't high enough, but it got really popular among clickbait website operators because it was yet another source of revenue that they could get um, in addition to Google AdSense. The problem with Google AdSense is Google, at least Google Search, does um, a generally robust job of not surfacing clickbait content um, in in its search rankings. So they could monetize through Google AdSense only if they got distribution via Facebook's platforms. They couldn't get distribution via Google search. So they were successfully writing articles that were particularly tailored to the the type of content that Facebook's algorithms amplify and then cashing in on Google AdSense and Facebook Instant Articles. The way that this ends up relating to YouTube is that Um, Even though Google search does a relatively good job of suppressing things, content that's not authoritative, AKA clickbait websites. um, YouTube's algorithm works pretty similarly to Facebook's in that it's trying to maximize engagement. And so the type of content that it amplifies is pretty similar to the type of content that Facebook's algorithm amplifies and clickbait actors have realized this and they have very cleverly come up with a strategy for maximizing the amount of engagement that their content can get so that they can maximize their their payouts from facebook so what they do is they will search for the content that has gone viral on youtube because it's a pretty much guarantee that it'll then go viral on facebook and they created a special plugin specifically a youtube plugin or or like it's a wordpress plugin for youtube where you can take a channel id um, from YouTube, plop it into this plugin, and it uploads all of the videos from that channel into WordPress. You check off whatever videos you want to keep, and then it turns every single one of them into an article. And the article, the articles all look the same. It's like the title of the article is the name of the video. The body of the article is just the video. And then the text under the video is like the text from the YouTube um, video, the about text. On the video, and that they and they just like publish these like dozens of them a day um, onto their sites, and then they take their clickbait website URLs, push them onto Facebook, and then the exact same content that went viral on YouTube goes viral on Facebook, and they get lots of money. And the thing is that because of the way that YouTube's algorithm works, a lot of what has been going viral on YouTube specifically in the myanmar context has been political misinformation so there are like all of these channels where it's not really clear like who's putting out this misinformation it's most likely a myanmar-based clickbait farm they put out all this content that it just says like really nonsense stuff like it'll say you know like right now the public in myanmar um the, uh, a majority of the public in Myanmar is very against the current military rule. And so there are a lot of narratives that play into this like very emotional stance that people have. So there's like narratives like, oh, the UN is sending 100,000 troops into Myanmar to crack down on the military government and save the people. Or like the Democratic leader who's currently detained or or was arrested and then is in in detention. It's like the Myanmar leader has finally been freed and is coming to reclaim her power. Or the military dictator is uh, evil because he's just assassinated the Democratic leader. It's just like a ton of like crazy stuff. What's wild is the people that then rip those videos off of YouTube and push them Onto their clickbait websites, onto Facebook, are actually then actors that are not based in Myanmar at all. They're primarily um, clickbait actors based in Cambodia and Vietnam, and they don't actually probably know what they're publishing. They they probably have no idea what's what's going on because they don't necessarily read Burmese or understand Burmese politics. But um, they just know that it's doing well on YouTube, so. It's going to pay give me payouts on Facebook. So these like foreign actors are just like taking the, this content off of YouTube, pushing it onto Facebook, and it's it's creating this like really chaotic and perverted recycling of misinformation across platforms.
0: So we've got this global disinfo junk info arbitrage uh, that's playing out on these platforms. But people are people are making a not a little bit of money. It's a lot of money. I mean, how how much do you reckon this business is worth to Facebook?
3: It's definitely worth millions. I mean, I it's like it's really this this was one of the hardest things in reporting was I was trying to find like a more precise figure. And the only two figures that I I have for Facebook in particular is in 2018, Facebook paid out $1.5 billion to publishers and developers monetizing with audience network, which is their ad advertising network. So the AdSense equivalent for Facebook. But we don't actually know what fraction of that is going to clickbait farms. But even if it were just like 0.1%, that's already tens of millions of of dollars. And in 2019, that figure um, went from 1.5 billion to mul- multi-millions. They, they don't ever, s- or sorry, multi-billions. They don't ever specify how many multi-billions, but I mean, this is what we need to recognize is there is quite a huge profit motive driving Facebook's desire for as many publishers as possible to sign on to monetizing in these programs Because the more publishers they can get to sign on to these programs, the more ad inventory they have. And then the more that they also get, they also generate ad revenue because they keep 30% of the ad profits and they give publishers 70%. So that's part of the, like, there's this quote from um, Victoire Rio in the piece where she's saying like the same push, reckless push for user growth that was originally what drove like the the advertising model originally drove facebook to recklessly push for user growth is now being replicated in a reckless push for publisher growth because it's again the more publishers they have the more money they make.
0: Karen, this stuff's pretty depressing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm a you know I mean I I've I'm a heavy consumer of of information of course about the tech platforms and their behavior but you know I I know I'm not going to ask you to, to necessarily be an advocate or to take the role of a policymaker, but having been doing this for a while, you know, what do you think should be done? What, what are, what is the recourse here?
3: I mean, I think from all of the the pieces that I've been working on and from the revelations of the Facebook papers, I mean, the, the, the one consistent thing that I, I personally think has come out of all of these rev- revelations is the, The business model and the fact that Facebook has designed its platform to maximize engagement, I think those are the two core things that regulators or policymakers need to think about uh, when they're thinking about how to rein in the harms that this company has produced. Because it's ultimately, that is what's driving all of its decisions and leads to this kind of recklessness and this carelessness and the amplification of misinformation, the um, the funding of misinformation, all of that goes back to those those two things. So I'm I don't I mean I don't know I'm not like a policy expert here, so I don't know what levers they need to be pulling <laughs> to well, fix that problem. But that is the problem that they need to fix.
0: I, I won't I won't demand more of you than what you've done, which is extraordinary in terms of bringing uh, these stories to the fore. And it does you know sort of strike me that. One of the things we have learned, of course, from the Facebook papers, a lot of that seems to corroborate the reporting that you've done. But we don't have a lot of that kind of detailed business intelligence or business information. That's not something that's come out of either of these companies, you know, precisely how much money they're making uh, on this type of activity. Uh, they deny that you know it's in their their long term interest and certainly Facebook denies that it's in its long-term interest to propagate this stuff in this way. but it it, it does seem that there's there's massive demand and that they're happy to meet that demand.
3: Yeah, I, I, I do, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's just hard to ignore. It's not like it's these these things aren't a coincidence. like the the way that they operate their business and and the business imperative that they have, clearly underpins a lot of their actions or lack of actions for that matter. And that we need to see that for what it is.
0: So I don't want to make you speculate, but you know, as I was thinking about this interview, I actually, I've uh, flown for the first time since the pandemic to see family uh, for Thanksgiving. And I was, I was sitting in the airplane and I was standing, waiting to get my, my bag. And the gentleman in front of me was scrolling through his Facebook feed and you know i i just happen to notice like you know it's it's sort of an update here from a, a friend or family a news item here or there and and none of it from recognizable news sources all from uh, what looked like you know kind of of click-baity content farms and mm-hmm. it just it just strikes me that this is this is such a a major problem that people are seeing just just such a I don't know. I mean, I don't, I I hate to be kind of paternalistic about it, but it's partly a demand issue as well. And this is kind of what people want to click on.
3: I, yeah, this is something that I struggle with a lot because I don't actually think so. I think this is what Facebook likes to talk about a lot, which is (laughs) I'm thinking back to that op-ed. I can't remember who. Is it Nick Clegg?
0: The two. Yes, Nick Clegg.
3: He was like, it takes two to tango. The
0: two to tango (laughs) op-ed.
3: Yeah. oh my god yeah um yeah i mean i that that is like the whole narrative that facebook likes to push out which is like oh it's all user choice it's user choice but actually it's not like if you I, one of the one of the more like shocking revelations i mean the entire report was shocking but the october 2019 troll farms report it's literally says that only 25% of the users that were exposed to the Troll Farm content had actually opted into it. 75% of the users who were seeing the content had never liked any of the pages, and they were simply being shown it because Facebook's recommendation system decided that these users would engage with that content. So on one hand, I agree that there is a certain level of user choice, but it's just... I mean, twenty five percent to seventy five percent. That's like the, the Facebook's ideas of what we should be consuming are dwarfing our own agency in, in this specific example in particular. And I would not be surprised if that is a pattern that we would see across the platform
0: and perhaps on other platforms.
3: Absolutely, and on other platforms. Yep.
0: So it's been a busy twenty twenty one for you. We're nearing the end of a, a long year. What Are you working on next?
3: Well, I'm currently at the MIT Night Science Journalism Fellowship. So I am working on a series that's trying to scrutinize the way that global AI development repeats some of the historical patterns of colonial history and basically concentrates more wealth and power into the wealthy and powerful people and takes away more agency um, and power from marginalized people. And I will leave it at that.
0: Well, it sounds like we've got more uh, cheery headlines to look forward to then in 2022.
3: <laughs> I do promise that one of the stories is actually quite cheery. So uh, I, I I will give you that.
0: <laughs> well, Karen, I am so grateful to you for your reporting and for taking the time to speak with me. And I wish you a happy Thanksgiving.
3: <laughs> Thank you so much, Justin. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs>
0: That's it for this week's episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our panelists. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.